the views expressed on TMI with Aldous Tyler are not necessarily those of WSUMFM, the University of Wisconsin in Madison, or the Board of Regents. Oh no, my friends, the views for the next hour are all mine. Tyler for Friday, April 30th, 2021. Now, as I'm sure you're aware, there are many um, opportunities lately to go ahead and fight for a higher minimum wage around the country, many of them local, but some of them now federal. And the thing that keeps coming up is that, oh, this is too much. You can't be paying people 15. Some people even go 12 or $11 is too much of a minimum wage for quote unquote unskilled labor. Well, really now what's unskilled labor? Because, okay. As reported by Ann Lowry in the Atlantic uh, this week, her uh, piece called low skill workers aren't a problem to be fixed. Uh, she says recently I was mesmerized by a prep cook. At a strip mall Korean restaurant, I caught a glimpse of the kitchen and stood dumbfounded for a few minutes, watching a guy slicing garnishes, expending half the energy I would if I were doing the same at home at twice the speed. The economy of his cooking was magnetic. He moved so little, but did so much. Being a prep cook is hard, low-wage and essential work, as the past year has so horribly proved. It's also a low-skill job, held by low-skill workers, at least in the eyes of many policymakers and business leaders, who argue that the American workforce has a skills gap or skills mismatch problem that has been exacerbated by the pandemic. Millions need to upskill to compete in the 21st century, or so say the New York Times and the Boston Consulting Group, among others. Those are just so common, virtually ubiquitous arguments in these elite policy conversations. They're also deeply problematic. Now, the issue is in part semantic. The term low skill, as we use it, is often derogatory, a socially sanctioned slur um, that, People casually lob at millions of American workers, disproportionately, by the way, black and Latino or immigrant, um, and of course, low income workers. 
Describing American workers as low skill also vaults over the discrimination that creates these low skill jobs and pushes certain workers to them. And it positions American workers as being the problem rather than American labor standards, racism, and sexism, and of course, social and educational infrastructure. It's a cancerous little phrase, low skill. As the pandemic ends and the economy reopens, we need to leave it behind. The general policy prescription, however, is that we need to leave low-skill workers behind. Forget about being essential. These are the millions of Americans without the credentials and chops to succeed in tomorrow's economy. Any number of white papers, panels, and conference colloquiums will tell you. Indeed, the Obama White House, as part of its upskill initiative, said that roughly 20% of American workers need to address their on-the-job deficiencies to realize their full potential. Fretting that 36 million people cannot compare and contrast information or integrate multiple pieces of information per one test. This description, like so many descriptions of low-skill workers, is objectively offensive, both patronizing and demeaning. Imagine going up to a person who's stocking shelves in a grocery store and telling them that they're low-skill and holding the economy back. Imagine seeing a group of nannies and blasting learn-to-code at them as life advice. The Low-skill label flattens workers into a single attribute, ignoring the capacities they have and devaluing the work they do. It pathologizes them, portraying low-skill workers as a problem to be fixed, my fair lady style. Academics do use the term low-skill with precision to measure changes in employment and pay and to compare different countries' workforces, but in the broader political arena, this sneering language is often so imprecise as to be useless. The terms low-skill worker and low-skill job are conflated, for one, although those are two very different charges. For individual workers, the problem, if any, is often not that they lack skills in general, but they, that they lack specific capacities or qualifications. A worker who came to the United States later in life might not be able to read or write in English, for example, but is that worker really low skill or just in need of a language class? Many foreign-born workers can't use employment certificates gained abroad in the United States. Is a foreign-born architect who ends up driving a taxi low skill? Many low-skilled workers are young. Are those actually low-skilled workers or just inexperienced workers? When business leaders and policy types talk about low-skill jobs or low-skill professions, things get even more imprecise. Frequently, they're lumping together entry-level jobs, jobs that do not require much education or formal, formal credential, jobs that do not require experienced workers, jobs without much opportunity for advancement, menial jobs, and most of all, low-wage jobs. But those are all very different things, each one of them, with wildly different policy implications. It is not a good thing for a country to have 
too few entry-level jobs, for instance. The country needs them, or else what are people entering the workforce, say leaving high school or whatnot, supposed to do? Now, the most gutting problem with these terms is that many low-skill jobs held by low-skill workers are anything but. Many of these are difficult, physically and emotionally taxing jobs that, in fact, require employees to develop extraordinary skills, if not ones you learn at medical school or MIT. A great deal of skill is necessary to wash a lunch rush's worth of dishes. If you don't believe me, try it. A great deal of skill is required to change the clothes of an immobilized senior who might not want to have her clothes changed. If you, ha if you don't believe me, try it. Wrangling a class of toddlers or cleaning up an overgrown yard at a breakneck pace or to handle five tables of drunk guys who want their wings yesterday takes an enormous amount of skill. Now, the kind of patience and equanimity it takes to be a good care worker? Apparently not a skill. The kind of fortitude it takes to be a fruit picker? Well, that's not a skill. Oh, really? Who are we if our policy language demeans those skills and those workers? We are ourselves, I suppose, which is to say that the low-skill label is a social construct that, at least in part, reflects the structural racism and sexism endemic in our economy. We understand jobs to be low-skill because of the kinds of people who hold those jobs. We see, we see certain skills as valuable because of the kinds of people who are asked to use those skills. We ignore other skills because the kinds of people asked to use those skills, and we shunt workers into what are called low-skill jobs due to circumstances out of their control. The point is not that all jobs require the same skills or the same capacities. The point is also not that all jobs are equally difficult. The point is that we scarcely stop to recognize how our biases inform our understanding of what skilled work is and whose work matters. As the Harvard economist Claudia Golden has demonstrated, women joining a given profession tends to, in quotes, reduce the prestige in that profession. She calls this the pollution theory of discrimination. Other research shows that pay starts dropping when women show up. Similarly, black workers being overrepresented in a given profession is associated with depressed wages. The same dynamics are surely at play in how we distinguish between low-skill, low-pay, and high-skill, high-pay work. The terms are, in part, euphemistic, a proxy for social capital and compensation, a way of justifying 20-something McKinsey consultants making 10 times what veteran groundskeepers do. At issue here, again, is not just rhetoric. The pandemic has helped us recognize many low-skill jobs as essential jobs, jobs integral to the functioning of the economy, but whose importance so often go, just doesn't translate into fair pay and good benefits. But here's the problem. I think we're losing that paradigm shift as 
everything is trying to normalize again. Cashiers and receptionists and delivery drivers and parents' helpers will once again be seen as economic deadweight, not vital economic utilities. White House after White House, both Republican or Democratic, they've pushed retraining, upskilling initiatives that put the onus on workers to improve themselves in order to improve their job market prospects and the American economy in general. In doing that, they make individual what's clearly a governmental and societal problem. The supposed lack of skills among American workers reflects the country's intergenerational poverty crisis, the brutal cost of higher education, the inaccessibility of affordable, quality health care and child care, and the barriers it puts up for immigrant workers as much as it does anything else. How are you supposed to upskill yourself if you're earning $11 an hour and have no benefits? Or if you dropped out of your associate's program because you cannot afford not to work? What kind of technical training are you supposed to do if you're taking care of young children? What's the point of upskilling yourself if you get paid off the books because of your immigration status? Is learning to code really going to help you overcome the felony charge on your record? Would workers upskilling themselves even do anything? Running the economy hot and pushing the unemployment rate towards scratch tends to solve the problem of worker-workplace mismatch. Higher labor costs also push employers to invest in making jobs better and training their own workforces. Workers, moreover, tend to be pretty good at equipping themselves with in-demand skills when they have the resources to invest in themselves and when companies are hiring. The problem lies not with American workers, but with American jobs and American policy infrastructure. Too many jobs pay too little. They're too dangerous. They offer too few benefits. They offer no union representation. They are inaccessible to millions of Americans who are pushed out of the labor market by illness, disability, poverty, the arrival of young children, or discrimination. All jobs could be good jobs, but only policymakers and business leaders have the skills to make that happen, not the workers. You're listening to TMI with Aldous Tyler. We'll be right back. Don't get very far Don't get very far 
And we're back, TMI, with Aldous Tyler. A few years ago, as you know, many people were focusing on millennials' apparent obsession with avocado toast, a team of researchers at the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis got to work investigating something much more serious, millennial wealth. They found that the typical millennial household as of 2016 had only about 28000 in net worth. Uh, that put them 40% behind what previous generations had in wealth at the same age, in inflation-adjusted terms, too, by the way. The data suggested that millennials were becoming a lost generation destined to be poorer than the generations that preceded them. Now, I mean, baby boomers, us Gen Xers here, we faced our fair share of calamities, stagflation, the double-dip recession of the 80s, you know, <laughs> disco. Um, but millennials have had it really rough. Millennials who got college degrees exited school deep in debt and entered a job market ravaged by the Great Recession. Millennials who didn't get college degrees found it harder to get a well-paying blue-collar job after trade and automation closed avenues that past generations had used to get to the middle class. As an example, my grandfather um, was the sole breadwinner, if you will, of his family of four children and a wife and a dog and a house that he was paying on and uh, paid off fine uh, with no issue by being a tool-and-die man. Now, this is not a college kind of thing. He didn't have to go to college for that. Oh, yes, he had to uh, he had to become an apprentice in the trade and learn the skill. But again, it wasn't the kind of thing he had to go into any kind of debt for at all. Anyway, um, so like I said, the the trade and automation avenues that uh, past generations like my grandfather had used to get to the middle class, those, those are closed. Um Basically, child-rearing and first home-buying years for the millennials, not to mention their ability to work face-to-face, -face, was interrupted, um, and then by a pandemic, no less. All the while, millennials have slogged through an economy muddied by growing inequality, stagnation, and a fading American dream. Now, the research team at the St. Louis Fed recently got his hands on some fresher data, which the team crunched to reveal what had happened to millennials in the years since 2016. The team found shockingly different trends within the millennial generation. Some millennials have rebounded dramatically in recent years. Others have fallen further behind. Black millennials have had it worst of all. Wouldn't you know it? They aren't just falling further and further behind white millennials in building wealth for their families. They're falling farther and farther behind what previous black generations amassed in wealth. Now, let me just quickly outline why this is startling, to put it mildly. Black Americans haven't had wealthy back generations. They haven't. Um, on average, each generation of black people in America haven't been wealthy. I mean, at all. I mean, you know, let's face it. First of all, most of them were brought here as slaves. Then when they were emancipated, they were kept down as much as possible by people who wanted to make sure that there was a lower class in society they could look down upon and they could exploit. 
Then once um, the Civil Rights Act came to be and everything, again, still prejudices were large. Um, equal opportunity employment was put in place to try to make sure that jobs were being offered to them as, as at least as much as it was to, uh, you know, white people. But the fact is, if you're going to look back generations of black people, there isn't wealth there to begin with. And black millennials are doing worse than black Gen Xers and even black boomers. That's pretty startling. Now, born in 1991, Anna Hernandez Kent is considered a young millennial, old enough to have friends who wear, you know, skinny jeans, but young enough to have friends who spend too much time playing Fortnite and making videos on TikTok. She's a senior researcher at the Institute for Economic Equity at the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis, and she's been on the team of researchers at the St. Louis Fed studying trends in millennial wealth. Now, the data culled by Kent and her fellow researchers comes from the Federal Reserve's Survey of Consumer Finances, which is detailed information on American wealth going back to 1989. The Fed releases the survey every three years. It's based on extensive interviews of thousands of Americans about the minute details of their finances. When the latest round of data from the survey was released last year, Kent and her colleagues got to work trying to figure out what had happened to millennials. Since their previous study suggested millennials could be on their way to lost generation status. That study had data only until 2016. The new survey gave them data up to 2019. The researchers focused on older millennials who were born in the 80s. We'll just call them millennials from here on out. But note that we're not talking about the younger millennials who were born in the 90s. Um, the millennial generation ends around 96 to 97, depending upon who you ask. Just FYI. Um, this time, the researchers found some surprisingly good news. Many millennials made dramatic progress after 2016. Kent says, what we found was pretty substantial. They had made wealth gains of over 80% in just a three-year period. By 2019, the typical millennial household had increased its net worth to about 51000 Millennials are still significantly behind in amassing wealth, about 11% or $6,400 behind previous generations, but they're way better off than they were just three years before. Kent says there's various reasons for this rebound. About half of millennials are invested in stocks, so the recent surges in the stock market helped. Even more important, Kent says, is the effect of millennial home ownership. More than half of millennials now own homes, and home prices surged between 2016 and 2019. Thus, the value of what they had went up, so their average net worth went up. Lastly, many millennials made progress in paying off their student loans, which show up in the data as negative wealth. I Don't even get me started on that. But this generally positive snapshot of the typical millennial masks something troubling. Non-college educated and black millennials are still lagging way behind. Kent and her colleagues found that the typical millennial without a college degree has 19% less family wealth than what previous generations without a degree had when they were the same age. Millennials who graduated from college, on the other hand, have just 4% less wealth than their similarly educated equivalents in generations uh, past. 
This growing inequality between college and non-college educated millennials fits into a ginormous amount of other research that shows that today's blue-collar and low-income workers have less upward mobility than they did in previous generations. But the most disturbing finding in their data concerns black millennials. While the typical white millennial family has about 88000 in wealth, the typical black millennial family has about $5,000 in wealth. No, not 25000 5,000 compared to 88,000. Now, I want to drill this home only because I think this is truly important for you to understand. The difference. A typical family where the people working were born in the 1980s who happened to be white have roughly $88,000 in wealth. A typical family whose breadwinners were born in the 1980s who are black have only $5,000 in wealth. I know I keep bringing that up, but let's just make sure we understand. That's like roughly one-fifteenth. You know, basically... One dollar in the black family's hands for every $15 in the white family's hands. Now, it gets even worse when you look at the trends. White millennial families made huge strides between 2016 and 2019, and they now lag previous generations of white families by only 5% roughly. Between 2007 and 2019, however, black millennials fell further and further behind. And again, not just compared with my white millennials, like I just compared for you, but compared with previous generations of black Americans. While white millennials trail the wealth of previous generations of white Americans by about 5%, black millennials trail previous generations of black Americans by 52%. When you adjust for inflation, the typical black millennial has $5,700 less in net worth than their counterparts in previous generations. That's insane. In fact, Kent says that's incredibly shocking because black Americans have made great progress in terms of political representation and other measures, but it doesn't seem to be translating into wealth gains. Now, Let's single out a few potential factors for this disturbing disparity between black and white millennials. First, white millennials are more likely to benefit from having wealthy parents. Their parents have more resources, for example, to help them with down payments for their first house or to help them pay off their student loans. About 80% of black millennials with at least a bachelor's degree still have student loan debt compared with about half of white millennials. White millennials are also more likely to own assets like stocks and homes, which have ballooned in value in recent years, which, again, will give the appearance of larger wealth when, you know, tracked like that. Uh, now, um, two thirds of white millennials own homes. Less than a third of black millennials do. Kent says, I think it's clear in the data that there is a segregated America. 
Now, that's always been true, but the troubling story is that despite racial progress in politics and culture, most black Americans have yet to see tangible wealth gains. Moreover, we should highlight this data was all collected before the pandemic, which has made racial inequality even worse. Maybe it's time we stop talking so much about how millennials like avocado toast and more about bread and butter. You're listening to TMI with Aldous Tyler. We'll be right back. I imagine that right now you're feeling a bit like Alice. Tumbling down the rabbit hole. You're listening to TMI with Aldous Tyler. Yes. On WSUM 91.7 FM in Madison. Hallelujah. My Savior, man. Known person of Jesus Christ. It's your cure for the common media. Airing every Friday at 5 p.m. Central. Podcasting every Monday evening. I like it. I think he likes it. What's the Oh, yes. Check out TMI, TMI, TMI.com for podcasts and all things TMI. I know Kung Fu. Show me. And we're back, TMI, with Aldous Tyler. Now, cities across the country are starting to buy up buildings as a way to increase affordable housing stock and to take more control of the market. That's being reported by Nate Berg at FastCompany.com. He says, The affordable housing crisis in America was bad enough before the COVID-19 pandemic. Nearly a third of households in the U.S. are renters, and almost half of those households pay more than 30% of their income for housing. Before a federal moratorium was put in place last fall, up to 40 million people were at risk of eviction due to the economic shock of the pandemic. That risk may not be going down anytime soon. One of the reasons for these stark numbers is the shortage of housing that's actually affordable to those with lower incomes. The stock of permanently affordable public housing has been dwindling since its mid-century heyday with just 1.2 million federally built public housing units left. Other affordably priced housing, much of which is developed by the private sector through tax credits and government subsidies, falls far short of providing the roughly 7 million homes needed by people with very low incomes. Of the 20 million cost-burdened households in the U.S., only about a quarter receive government housing assistance in any form whatsoever. A growing number of cities are stepping up to meet this need by exploring new ways of building affordable housing and preserving what already exists. The pandemic has created the conditions for cities to more boldly invest in their own affordable housing stock and take more control over the market forces that have caused prices to skyrocket. Filling the supply gap is critical, but for decades, and especially during the pandemic, more attention has been focused on stopping the bleeding. Priya Jayachandran, president of the National Housing Trust, says... We have not kept pace with production really since the early 90s. We've minted more new low-income renters during COVID than we'll ever be able to produce units for. So we're still going to be in a hole and a worse hole 
than when this started last March. New possibilities are emerging with the Biden administration's agenda, and this may be the most opportune moment in decades for cities to start filling their affordable housing deficits. There are several promising models, both longstanding and cutting edge, that show how. It starts with cities taking literal ownership of the problem by buying more of the housing within their borders. James Stockard, a former longtime commissioner of the Cambridge Housing Authority in Massachusetts and a lecturer on housing studies at Harvard, says that he's been thinking about the housing crisis now for decades. I'm going to get radical on you, he says. If we really want to solve the housing problem in this country, we have to get as much of the private housing stock as we can out of the hands of for-profit owners and turn it over to nonprofit owners and public owners. Now, as radical as that sounds, it's actually pretty simple. Just like any other actor in the marketplace, all a city would have to do to get this housing stock is buy it. It's happened in Dallas, where last May the city's housing authority bought a 347-unit apartment building right next to a commuter rail station. Happened in Missoula, Montana, where the city's housing authority prevailed in a bidding war to buy and preserve an affordably priced 96-unit apartment complex. It even happened in cash-strapped Gary, Indiana, where the city's housing authority bought a disused elementary school and plans to convert it into affordable housing. Despite funding barriers and political challenges, cities across the country have shown that this can work, but not nearly enough realize that it's an option. Stockard says, it just isn't on their radar. We provide police services. We pick up the trash. We pave the streets. We don't buy houses, they say. In Cambridge, the housing authority has been particularly aggressive in adding to the city's affordable housing stock by buying existing properties and also paying a large sum up front to building owners so that they extend the affordability period on housing built using federal subsidies, periods that sometimes last for only 15 to 30 years. Stockard says, the authority just gave the owner of a building a huge check, but it bought 50 more years of affordability for 500 homes. Clever, determined cities, and especially those with some resources, can buy that affordability for a number of more years. The costs of doing this are not insignificant. Okay, let's, let's not try to say that, oh, this is really affordable stuff. Uh, Stockard notes that well-resourced cities like Cambridge have an easier time carving a slice of their budgets to make such purchases, but that even less wealthy cities can find ways. One example is redirecting short-term resources like part of the budget of an emergency shelter to fund permanent supportive housing for the chronically homeless. The funds have similar goals and rerouting some of them can provide longer-term benefits. Low-rent housing developments on the open market are a straightforward way for cities to buy and preserve affordable housing in King County, Washington, for example. The Housing Authority has created or preserved 7,000 units of housing since the year 2000. Minneapolis and St. Paul have an affordable housing preservation fund that's in the process of buying 1,500 homes in the two cities. In Los Angeles, the city council just approved a plan to expand its effort to buy and preserve affordable housing, setting up a goal of buying up 10,000 units in the next 10 years. With about 
10 million households nationwide paying more than 50% of their income on rent. These numbers are far below the overall need, but they represent a start. Stockard says landlords are struggling. They're uncertain about whether they're ever going to be made whole in terms of the rent that hasn't been paid. I'm certain that in many cities around the country, the city could pick up some rental properties for much less than they could have two years ago, or than they'll be able to two years from now. Basically, what Stockard is saying is, look, some landlords are hurting, and they want possibly out of the game so long as they can make sure that they're not losing. So if the city essentially pays off the back rent, that a landlord is looking at and helps make sure that landlord is good, the landlord might be willing to sell that property way less expensively right now to a city than they would any other time before or after. The Department of Housing and Urban Development has been trying to help with a new way of governing the public housing authorities that many big cities use to manage their public housing and affordable housing stocks. Previous to now, housing authorities were tightly restricted in how they could use federal funding with pools of funding dedicated to very specific purposes like maintenance or housing vouchers. Funding from one pool couldn't be used to meet shortfalls in another. Through a new demonstration program called Moving to Work, a few dozen housing authorities have been given more flexibility in how they use their federal funding, enabling authorities like Cambridge's to buy and preserve existing housing and even develop new affordable projects. Housing and urban development plans to expand that program to another 100 housing authorities by 2022. But for now, most housing authorities, which Stockard likens to property managers, are really very constrained in how they can use their funding. Sunia Zaterman, executive director of the Council of Large Public Housing Authorities, says, Our focus now is assembling the tools to give housing authorities more ability to acquire properties and to bring to neighborhoods other types of affordable housing. Housing and urban development's more flexible rules can help, but there are still challenges. Money, she says, you may have heard of this before, Money is the key obstacle. With extra pressure added by the pandemic, Congress has made some notable efforts to offset housing challenges, including the temporary eviction moratorium and the distribution of roughly $47 billion in short-term rental assistance. New funding commitments from the Biden administration could accelerate and spread these efforts. Housing is being put at center stage in a way we haven't seen for some time, says Zaderman. Building on a campaign platform that proposed roughly $85 billion in affordable housing funding and incentives, Biden's administration has also taken the big step of including $213 billion in funding for affordable housing in the new $2 trillion infrastructure bill. The plan would build, preserve, or retrofit a total of 2 million homes and would also put $40 billion toward long-standing maintenance and infrastructure needs in the public housing system. Zaderman says the appropriations level and the central position in the legislation reflects an acknowledgement that housing stability is totally intertwined with economic recovery, COVID recovery, racial equity, and climate change issues. 
Compared to a typical year when housing and urban development's entire budget hovers around $50 billion, the current plan is a massive increase in funding specifically addressing housing affordability. When cities own more of their housing, more of it is affordable. One example can be seen in Berlin, Germany, where the state-owned housing companies own and manage more than 325,000 units of housing across the city. Partly a product of post-war rebuilding and former East Germany's communist past, the state ownership of housing has long been a part of Berlin's housing market, as well as the housing market in, G in Germany in general. Um... Maddie Schenk, a researcher at the global real estate company Savalas, who's written a report on the German rental housing market, says, Altogether, these state-owned housing companies have a stock of roughly 17% of all rental units, which is definitely a high share. Because the city controls the housing companies, it can also control the price of housing. Their role is generally a stabilizing aspect in the market. It is not only the fact that state-owned housing companies are offering affordable rents, but the long-term strategy in Berlin is that by owning more units, the municipality is getting more and more control over the entire market. I mean, if you're a, a private, um, a private landlord, you don't want to outprice the public housing too much, or you're just not going to get renters. But this state participation in the housing market isn't simply a holdover from East German communism. It's a direct response to skyrocketing housing costs, which have been on the rise for several years. Part of the way the city has been able to increase its housing stock is through a state law that allows it right of first refusal on residential properties being sold. So let me make sure I, we get that here. The city of Berlin has a right to be the first ones to say, no, nah, we're not going to buy that property whenever a residential property is being sold. Because of this, it gets first crack at all of them. Now, technically, it's possible in other parts of Germany. The law has been used only sparingly until recently, when one district in Berlin began using it to prevent the loss of affordably priced housing. Since 2017, it's bought hundreds of units a year. Though Berlin's approach is more aggressive than others, state-owned housing makes sense in Germany because so much of the population rents, according to Schenk. His report shows that there are 21 million rental apartments nationwide and that in some cities, such as Berlin, Frankfurt, Hamburg, the proportion of the population that rents rather than owns is above 70%. Now, that's Germany. But, you know, things aren't actually that different in the U.S. cities. According to a 2018 analysis from Zillow, renters made up more than 60% of households in New York, Los Angeles, San Francisco, Oakland, Miami, Boston, D.C. Uh, of the largest 50 cities here in, in the U.S.A., 29 have renter households in the majority. In other words, 51% or more. City-owned housing meets only a tiny fraction of this renter demand. In Los Angeles, a city of 4 million people, the Housing Authority owned fewer than 7,000 public housing units as of 2019. The New York City Housing Authority has the largest public housing stock of any U.S. city, but still only owns about 170,000 housing units, accommodating just 5% of the city's roughly 3 million households. 
These cities may have lessons to learn from Germany's system, according to Wulo uh, Lung Amam, a non-resident senior fellow in governance studies at the Brookings Institution. Wulo says, in many European countries, the state does own a large portion of the housing, and that's how housing is protected. For some reason, that's a really unpalatable conversation here in the USA or has historically been ever in this country. And I think we need to change that. Some cities in the U.S. now have the legal framework to make it easier to buy up housing. In Washington, D.C., a right of first refusal law gives the city or a development partner the ability to buy properties at market rate when they come up for sale. A related law allows tenants the same right when the owner of their home or apartment building is proposing a sale. Now, that's interesting. Now, check that out. Wait a minute. If you're a tenant um, and you're renting a home or you and, say, eight other tenants are in an apartment building and the owner puts it up for sale, according to the, the law that is in Washington, D.C., you can go together with your fellow tenants to try to buy that building. That could be interesting. Other cities, including San Francisco and Portland, Oregon, have made similar moves, by the way. Lungamom says, it takes a lot of resources to be able to invest in affordable housing, but it's absolutely possible. There are a ton of tools that municipalities can take advantage of, a ton of great examples of cities that are doing wonderful things. But most cities don't do it because they don't have to. And there's not always a huge outcry if they don't. The federal government remains the primary funder of affordable housing through low-income housing tax credits given to developers and rental subsidies, formerly known as Section 8 vouchers, given directly to renters. That means that it has the power to distribute the resources to meet more of the growing demand for affordable housing. But since the federal government essentially stopped building public housing projects in the 1960s and passed a 1990 era's law that prevented from building more, cities have been left to determine how that funding gets distributed and where projects are either built or preserved. With a historic amount of federal money being put on the table, the onus is now on cities to act. In many cities, there's plenty of opportunity, particularly housing units from the early 90s that were developed using low-income housing tax credits that could soon be converted to market-rate housing after their 30-year affordability requirement is over. Cities should consider themselves viable bidders when building owners look to cash out of their investments and sell on the open market. Stockard says cities could be more aggressive about buying these properties uh, from for-profit owners at the end of their affordability period. The best method is to buy them and turn them over to a nonprofit or the housing authority. There's no question that housing operated well by a public agency or by a nonprofit body is less expensive than housing operated by a for-profit organization. He argues that housing authorities benefit by not having to pay any real estate taxes, passing along savings to residents. Owning affordable housing can even be profitable with some housing authorities able to build up a pool of funding to do new development. Most don't do this, though, for reasons including housing and urban development rules that prevent the funds from being used for development, a perceived or you know, real lack of funding to buy or develop a project, lack of political will, etc. But that's there. They can do that. Now, the private sector is starting to fill the void 
and it's reaping benefits. In Charlotte, North Carolina, where growth is putting pressure on the housing market, social impact investors have funded an effort to buy and preserve naturally occurring affordable housing for the next 20 years. And in Arlington, Virginia, the nonprofit Washington Housing Conservancy plans to preserve or create 1,300 units of affordable housing near the new Amazon HQ2 using below market financing from Amazon's new 2 billion housing equity fund. These efforts are successful as much for their innovation as for the slow pace of action at the city level. Jay Chandran of the National Housing Trust says policies such as giving a city right of first refusal on properties coming to market do get some pushback, especially from the mainstream real estate community. Their argument is cities are interfering with market dynamics. Jay Chandran says, I would argue there's a market failure and there's an externality that the right of first refusal is solving. The owner is not sacrificing. You're matching that price. There's also the challenge of gathering political support for big changes in housing policy. In many municipalities, it's not a platform that a lot of people run on to protect affordable housing or protect public housing or to invest more in poor people and generally poor people of color. And most cities will face the inevitable limitation of funding. Uh, Stockard says, there's no city you're going to go to where they're, they're going to tell you, we've got plenty of extra dough. We can't figure out what to do with it. These budget challenges have only been exacerbated by the pandemic. But even without the huge infusion of funding proposed in the Biden administration's infrastructure plan, creative cities and housing authorities can tap existing funding sources. Stockard suggests that they can use their less restrictive community development block grant funds to buy properties or partner with nonprofit developers and redirect some of their federally funded housing vouchers to make place-based affordability a feature of new projects. Now, cities may not suddenly start buying up massive amounts of affordable housing or aggressively encouraging its development at the scale needed to quickly address the housing shortage, but still, there are a few simple things they can do to lay the groundwork. Jayachandran points to policy changes such as zoning reform that lifts onerous restrictions on more affordable multifamily development. Uh, improved permitting processes that let accessory dwelling units be built in backyards and allowing prefabricated or modular housing to be more easily approved. Focusing development near transit and reinvesting in neighborhoods where affordability exists but jobs don't can also have long-term benefits. Jay Chandran says lots of little things add up. It's not one thing. I think it just has to be a comprehensive, holistic approach to housing. There are many proven approaches and piecemeal solutions, but if cities want to take a big first step towards solving housing affordability issues, it may be time to start buying it. Stockard says, for my money, this is the moment in history to start buying those buildings. And Lord only knows here in Madison, we could sure use them. You've been listening to TMI with Aldous Tyler, and I want to point something out. You may have noticed that throughout the episode today, we've been talking about low-skill jobs 
And then we were talking about how uh, generationally the newer generations, millennial, for example, are uh, earning notably less than their counterparts in in, uh, former generations did at the same age, and especially that there's a great racial divide there. Um, Then we were noticing that housing, affordable housing, is really lacking here in America. But in all three cases, what I want to point out, they have one very big common thread. We have a historic opportunity right here in front of us, right now, to fix these problems. Never before have we had the kind of federal funding thrown directly at these issues like we are right now, thanks to the pandemic. So, yes, it's a horrific thing. Over 500,000 people dead. So many people, so many more people suffering permanent uh, disability or or, uh, other issues um, thanks to having caught COVID-19. And the damage done to society was tremendous. But the fact is how we fix society from this calamity presents an opportunity to actually fix it, to actually go ahead and put in measures that will make life better, not just for the people who've had good lives to begin with, but for everybody, not just for the super rich, but for those who've never been rich. And for those whose American dream consists simply of being able to have a house for their family to grow up in and live their lives. Now, people ask me all this. Wow, you sure have a clear view of how you think reality should be. And how do you get that when you're bombarded constantly, like everybody is, by too much information, all of this noise, this misinformation out there? And I say, look, if you want to see reality for how it is, First, you have to close your eyes, breathe deep, find that center within yourself. Then you'll be ready to see reality for how it is. All you have to do is simply open.